This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Always happy to talk to our next guest, of course, back from La La Land, where he was out watching the uh, Nuggets sweep the Lakers. Covering that for the Denver Gazette is, is our friend Vinny Benedetto. You can follow him on Twitter at VBenedetto. Vinny, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, obviously, there's a lot to talk about here, but I just first want to get a feel for what it was like in L.A. watching both of those games slip out of the hands of the Lakers in that building with that fan base. Yeah, it was really interesting because game three on Saturday night felt like it was, you know, I mean, it was a Saturday night in Los Angeles. It was the big event in town. Obviously, there were celebrities and all that stuff there both nights. But for me, I think the energy was, uh, there was just a little bit more anticipation and hype in the building on Saturday night. And then Monday, it's it's a 5.30 p.m. local start. Yeah, and with the very LA, different. With the L.A. traffic, it's... Uh, it seemed like it was hard for people to, to get there on time because it was like kind of dead, you know, right before the game. And then right. you know, people make their way in and, and, and the crowd gets into it, obviously, as LeBron is kind of playing on a superhuman level and getting them up 15 at halftime. It was, uh, you know, it, it felt like, OK, you know, this is a, a strong last stand. But after that, that third quarter, um, you know, fans were obviously still engaged in the game. As as it was close down the stretch, but but afterwards, you know, I think you know, I posted a video of this as as the Nuggets are getting the award, there are a chance of MVP and Let's Go Nuggets. Uh, so that that plays emptied out pretty quick on uh, on Monday night. The headline today in USA Today's sports section is underrated, overlooked, no more. Does this apply only to Nikola Jokic? Or does it apply to both Jokic and the Denver Nuggets, in your opinion? I think it. I think it's primarily Jokic, but I think it applies to both. I mean, I think. Um, I think a lot of guys have have done enough to change the narrative of, of kind of who they are. I mean, Jamal Murray has certainly reinforced the notion that he's the guy who rises to the moment in the playoffs. Um, I think Michael Porter Jr. has done a lot to dispel the notion that he is a hopeless defender in the playoffs. I think there were questions about uh, how, how ready Aaron Gordon might be to contribute to a team with, with championship aspirations, or if he could be, um, this might be putting it too, too strongly, but if he could be punked a little bit after, uh, you know, going up against Draymond in the Warriors last year. Um, I think Bruce Brown has proven that he's, uh, you know, worth a little bit more than his current contract states. I think uh, if I haven't mentioned this before, I think Michael Malone has proved that he's a better coach than that he's probably gotten credit for for a lot of the last few seasons. So yeah, I think I think it starts with Joker for sure, but I think it's it, it's um, it, it's a, uh, it's fitting for everybody almost. It, it does feel like sort of a a victory for the French uh, for the franchise itself in a lot of ways. There are a lot of people to, to be uh, proud of, and for the fans, obviously, this has been such a, a long time in coming. And let's take those maybe a, a bit at a time. And let's start with Michael Malone, who at, at this point, we had, had concerned at this point last year about his ability to adjust on the fly, how he would handle rotations, how he handles in-game management. It was the weakest part of his coaching. I don't think too many people would disagree with that. But here we are through the first three rounds of the playoffs, and not once has Michael Malone been out-coached in a manner in which any of their three losses could be laid at his feet. 
How much of, of, of this, these changes have you seen in him that happened during the regular season since you were around the team and really have kind of switched on since these playoffs? Yeah, and it was um, – I think it was just his ability to kind of – and he might have been forced into this with just with minor injuries, but it seemed like he got a lot of different looks throughout the regular season where he he kind of had a almost a Rolodex of options in terms of what do we look like when Zeke Najee's anchoring the second unit as a center? What what does that look like You know, when we need to try a Thomas Bryan or a DeAndre Jordan? And, and we've seen the the – Aaron Gordon being the second unit center. Um, so I think he's just been more willing and, and maybe a little bit forced by, by some of the injuries to, to reevaluate some things in terms of um, just the options at his disposal. And, and Bruce Brown being a secondary ball handler and sharing the court with Jamal Murray is, I think, another example of that. Um, just kind of small tweaks that, that take some of the pressure off some of his star guys. And I think he's kind of reaped the benefits of just that, that versatility and that, that openness throughout the playoffs. We weren't there and you were. I want to ask you about the shot that everybody is talking about even 48 hours plus later, and it's that three-point shot that Jokic made, and I'll let LeBron James describe it as he did after the game. He puts the ball behind his head. Larry Bird style and shoots at 50 feet in the air and it goes in and he's got a rueful grin on his face and he mimes the tipping of the cap. And yet for those of us who have watched Jokic and certainly for LeBron James, it wasn't a fluke. James said he made four or five shots just like it throughout the series. That was the shot that, to me, if you want a signature example of Nikola Jokic's greatness, maybe his uniqueness, that was the shot that kind of epitomized it. Yeah, and and he joked after the game um, that that is his signature shot, and it was one of those moments where he says it, and then he kind of like waits to see everyone's response. And then he says he's joking and like, he might be joking, but I don't think he should be because to your point, I think it was uh end of game one against the Lakers or not the end, end of the third quarter, end game of one third quarter game one. Yep. He hits that shot and, and Anthony Davis just looks at him like, are you kidding me? And Joker just shrugs like it, like it, you know, Hey, I, I, I just threw it up. Uh, and then there was another shot like that earlier in game four and my favorite thing about those shots to LeBron's point is like they go so high in the air that you can kind of track it and it's like there's half a second where it's like maybe that has a shot and then it goes to I think that's online and then you know at the end it just splashes through the net without you know touching any rim so yeah I think that that's a signature moment and I was talking with some guys after the game and it was just like could he replace that in the finals? Could there be an even more, you know, even more signature shot from him? But it's, it, I think just that one footed Larry Bird releases is, is that that shot should live in Denver history. I think for a long time. When you when look at what Jokic is doing, I mean, it's kind of remarkable, but Sandy and I both agree that uh, this season, despite winning the MVP in the previous two seasons, he was better. 
and and you wonder at one point, you know, where is the ceiling? How much better can can somebody really be? And now, all of a sudden, after sweeping the Lakers, it seems like a lot of the national media folks that were out there are finally wrapping their heads around, wow, okay, this this quirky guy out of Serbia is not putting up fluke numbers. These are for real. And, and it seems like Jokic continues to uh, improve and, and find ways to dominate games. And it's like it gets to a different level every single time out. We, we, we know about the fact that he finished that. Uh, that game, they finished the sweep. He goes into basically a makeshift workout room, works out after the game again. This idea that the Jokic just sort of shows up and, and performs well, it's obviously been blown to smithereens. This is a guy that has worked immensely on his conditioning, and it shows, and works on every facet of his game in an almost obsessive manner that the only player that really, I think, gets the coverage for that is probably Steph Curry. But their work habits aren't all that different. Yeah, and that's something that we've heard about Joker for the last few years is is the work ethic and the the constant desire to get better, even if it seems hard to fathom that he can get materially better. But, you know, one thing that stands out for me in these playoffs from him is, is the three-point shooting. He's been a, a more willing, I think, three-point shooter. He's shot it at a really high level, and he's, he's picked the spots really well, even beyond, you know, obviously he says the uh, – the end of the shot clock or the buzzer shots he likes because there's no there's no thought that goes into it he just has to find a way to get the shot up um but in, but in the other moments where he's going up against the uh minnesota's two bigs and he's trying to draw one of them away from the hoop at least it's you know he he's a he's a capable three-point shooter and, and that's a shot we've seen him uh i think turn down at times throughout the regular season but but this postseason is um I think we've seen him take and make those shots at a higher level, and I think that's something that that could be an area where he he can be even better and and you know make that a bigger part of his game moving forward. Reducing the Nuggets just to uh, some of the metrics uh, uh, seems, in a way, uh, designed by some to shortchange them, but the metrics in this particular area are just so remarkable. This is playoff numbers that we're talking about. These numbers are playoff numbers. The Nuggets are averaging 119.7 points per 100 possessions. They have clearly the most advantageous home court setting in the playoffs. They're the only team including the two other teams still remaining that has not been beaten at home in the playoffs. And they're also the only team that hasn't been blown out in the playoffs. Even in the three games they lost, they were single digit losses. And yet there's still the reality that going into the playoffs, sports books had them as just the sixth, likeliest team to win the title. That was back in April when the playoffs began. Their odds at the time trailed those of two Western Conference teams with worse regular season records, the Suns and the Warriors, and barely led another, the Lakers. Can the Nuggets still take advantage, talk about with some degree of credibility, that they're being undersold, as Michael Malone would seem still to be determined to do, or is it 
time now that even the national media recognizes the Nuggets to drop that bit of gamesmanship, by play, narrative, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think it's probably time for, for the national media to drop that narrative. I'm not sure they will. Just looking at these two finals opponents, you've got a you know, a Boston squad that's the most one of the most decorated franchises in the NBA, and then you've got the Miami thing with you know, Eric Spolstra, who I think is, you know, a lot of people would agree, maybe the best coach, best active coach right now in, in, in Pat Riley's history and, and heat culture and all those things. So I think both those franchises are still probably ahead of the Nuggets in terms of a national perspective, but uh, I think that could change in the next two weeks. Who would be the team, in your opinion, uh, as much as we know right now, the other series isn't over, but Miami is up three games to one. Which team would it be better for the Nuggets to play? I think I think Miami's the team you want if you're the Nuggets and and I that agree. feels a, a little scary to say out loud when you consider the level Jimmy Butler's playing at. Um, and I think Bam Adebayo is a really good player. I just don't think he has enough to to bother Jokic um, from a size perspective. And offensively, I don't know you know if if he's going to be able to make a mark there. And I like. I like the ability, if you're the Nuggets, to dispatch Aaron Gordon on Jimmy Butler. And it's, it's another one of those situations where, you know, Jimmy's playing at such an incredible level right now where he's in that, in the mode of a Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, LeBron, where it's just like, make it hard and we'll live with the results. And I, I think Michael Porter's strides defensively have, have made him somebody that you can't really seek out to much success anymore and, and Bruce Brown's ability to, to guard slightly bigger guys. So I, I like the Nuggets options there just in terms of even on switches, having KCP or Mike fight. Um, and then the Aaron Gordon and, and Bruce Brown being the, the other two guys you can throw at a guy like Jimmy Butler, just to give him different looks. So he's not settling into one coverage and, and going up against the same guy every time. Uh, yeah, so I, I just kind of like the way the Nuggets uh, match up with Miami a bit better, whereas Boston has, you know, Al Horford and Robert Williams. I think you've got the versatility to do different things. Jalen Brown is the guy I think you could throw on Jamal uh, to some level of success. So I, I think Miami's the team uh, Nuggets fans should be rooting for, and I think Nuggets fans should be pretty happy that Boston got that game last night just to extend that series a little bit and uh, give the Nuggets, you know, another game to scout um, from, from both those teams. We're talking with Vinny Benedetto of the Denver Gazette. And, Vinny, last one for you here. You know, this week uh, for the the Nuggets, obviously, this is a long layoff uh, until the first when the series starts. Uh, It's the longest layoff they'll have uh, all year. I mean, it's longer. It's at this point now it'll be longer than the All-Star break. Uh, Is there any concern that they lose any uh, of their mojo, so to speak? Yeah, I get it from a rust perspective, and you probably have to be toe a fine line if you're Michael Malone in terms of intensity of practices this week. I think you probably want to let these guys get a couple of days just completely off their feet to come back refreshed. And then maybe you go fairly hard for a couple of days before you wind back down again. Um, so I think that could be part of it. But I also think these guys are are, are have displayed a, a really heightened level of maturity um, this postseason compared to uh, the postseason passed, and you know I wasn't around in the bubble the last time they had, uh, you know, a shot to to make it to the finals. But um, we've we've just heard you know all about the veteran leadership, and, and you've got, you know DeAndre Jordan, Jeff Green, getting those guys a ring, and 
Contavious Caldwell Pope having done it before, I think that'll help the Nuggets kind of um, just just stay focused and, and you know be willing to provide the requisite energy in practices without you know burning themselves out in any further ahead of Game One. He is Vinny Benedetto. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at vbenedetto over at the Denver Gazette and put everything he's getting together there. Obviously, you're covering the Nuggets, uh, the man on the scene. So, Vinny, always appreciate your insight. Thank you. And uh, here we go. The NBA Finals on tap soon enough. Appreciate all of the uh, the looks into how the Nuggets managed to pull this off and looking forward to, to seeing what's next. Appreciate you guys. It's going to be a, a fun couple of weeks. All right, thanks. Vinny Benedetto from the Denver Gazette joining us. Always happy to have the folks from the Gazette there. Uh, very lucky to be joined by a lot of their uh, their writers on this show. So uh, terrific work that they're, they're, doing, they're doing over there. And, yeah, that, that scene was, is interesting. And I, I think it was interesting you brought up the, the very real fact that 5.30 p.m. start in L.A., that's a late arriving crowd on a good day, but that traffic, yeah. oof, that uh, yeah. may not I, have done I, the Lakers any favors. I didn't notice that they were late arriving as much on Saturday. And, uh Certainly the national announcers have said, uh, at least through the playoff season, that Laker crowds have been louder than they've ever been. And Laker fans are famous or infamous for their collective reserve, even during the showtime years. Now, when they were going up against Boston, they could get loud. But it was usually, and I know from having spent many a night at the uh, so-called fabulous forum, great Western or otherwise, that uh, the crowds here for Nuggets Lakers were always much louder than the crowds in Los Angeles for Nuggets Lakers. Maybe that's changed, uh, but I, I think you you saw more of uh, a sense of resignation. <laughs> On Monday night, a little with, bit with the fans, it had down three zero. You know, even you're watching the last game of the Laker season if you're a a fan, even if they win it, because they're certainly not going to go to Denver and win Game Five. No, and there uh, was never any chance of that happening. And there, I didn't think there was much chance of the Lakers winning Monday night. Well, they didn't, and so <laughs> I guess they're on to the NBA Finals and the wait the winner of the uh, the Heat and Celtics series. The, what the Nuggets' strengths have been, when you look at the way, especially compared to, to Boston, as we've talked about, the way that the Nuggets play connected basketball, Vinny alluded to it, too. What does that mean against a Boston Celtics team? What does that mean against a Miami Heat team? We'll take a peek at that next on Mile High Sports. From Infinite Town to the last relapse album, he still whether he's on salary, paid hourly, until he battles out of his battles out of him, whichever comes first, go better. Sandy Cuff and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. We talked a little bit earlier in the program about the Boston Celtics and how uh, you compared it a bit of an AAU team, and I think there's something to that. That's a team that doesn't play very connected basketball. Right. Because they don't play connected basketball. The very definition of disconnected. They're up and down. Yeah. They're nine That's and eight right. in these playoffs, and they're at the risk of being eliminated in any of the next three games in their series with Miami. Miami, uh, a little more connected, obviously a team that does sort of play yeah. sort of oh, a unified sure. offense, uh, certainly centered around Jimmy Butler, but uh, 
you have Jimmy Butler himself averages more assists per game in the playoffs than anybody on the Celtics. Right. And you still have a guy in Kyle Lowry who's uh, been a good passer over the course of his career. Who now comes off the bench. It's a very interesting gambit because the one true point guard they have comes off the bench. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although Gabe Vincent's kind of performing in that role. Uh, 4.1 assists per game. But it's really just, more of a score, though. It's the style of offense that I think is the intriguing part. And that's where I think the Nuggets have been completely unique. And that's where I think it's been difficult for teams to stop the Nuggets over the course of 48 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's in large part because, of course, they have the best basketball player in the world in Nikola Jokic, who can control a game in any manner in which he chooses. If that means he needs to get a bucket at any time he does, if it means he's going to pass the, the ball, he does. If he's going to orchestrate an offense on a fast break. That's what he does. Uh, you have a rare player like that. At the same time, the Nuggets have bought into these this ethos that while it is not quite the same as Doug Moe, but you can't let the ball get sticky, and you have to be moving. And and obviously, Jokic makes that happen, but the rest of the team, for the most part, has bought into it, and that includes guys who, at times, have had the tendency of hanging around the, the, the three-point line in the corner, and that's both Aaron Gordon and Michael Porter Jr., and as the, the playoffs has gone along, both of these guys have continued to be moving without the ball. As a result... Uh, the Nuggets become an incredibly difficult offense to stop because uh, the plan, to a certain extent, is there is no plan. Just if, keep moving. If I were to advance a theory on the difference between the Nuggets in the regular season and the Nuggets in the playoffs, it would be that the connection that you speak of is more apparent involving everyone as opposed to just taking advantage of Jokic being on the floor. Because anybody can play with Jokic. As long as Michael you hustle. Michael Porter plays well with Jokic. As long as you hustle. Aaron Gordon plays Moving well with ball. Jokic. Caldwell Pope plays well with Jokic. Murray, obviously. Uh, you can And bench guys are better players when Jokic is on the floor with them, which doesn't happen a whole heck of a lot. But the difference to me is Porter now takes passes from Murray and passes to Murray. Or Porter finds Jordan in the corner, uh, Gordon in the corner for a three. That's the difference to me, that there is overall connection. And that's why I mentioned the 119.7 points per 100 possessions. Because in other years, you'd say, well, yeah, that's great with Jokic on the floor, right? Or with Jokic and Murray on the floor. Right? Right. This is 119.7 per 100 possessions, no matter what the combination is on the floor. That's that's, and, and that's remarkable. A, that's and that's a change. That's a change. Michael Malone, as recently as midseason this year, would tell people when Jokic is not in the game, I put my hand over my eyes. I don't even want to look. I just want to get him back into the game as quickly as possible. I, as recently as this year, he said that. He does not say that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly because Jokic is on the floor for An 40 to 45 half, right. minutes, including the entire second half in game four. 
So he doesn't have to cover his eyes because Jokic is not sitting on the bench nearby very often. But even when he is out, he was in foul trouble, as you may remember, in game three. In the third quarter, he had four fouls. They had to take him out for about six minutes, as I recall, Mm -hmm. maybe even a little more than that. Yep. They more than held their own during those six minutes. In fact, it was said after the game that was the key to the Nugget win, the non-Jokic minutes. And they won the game by 11 points because they didn't lose points in the non-Jokic minutes. Right. And if, if that happens... The Nuggets become almost impossible to beat. In the if the if the Nuggets win the non-Jokic minutes, or just stay even, or stay even, it, it is almost impossible to consider beating that Nuggets team, and that's the challenge. And you saw with the Lakers, uh, despite the fact they have two elite players, one of the all-time greats. There's just too many ways to score. Too many ways to, to maximize the ability of this team, and it really does depend on that bench. And in this series, I, I suspect, no matter who they're playing, they will need more from Christian Brown than they got in the last two games of, of this series. I don't know that they will, though. I, I really don't. I, I, I think at this point, uh, whatever they get from him is is a bonus. Maybe they get some defensive minutes if somebody's in foul trouble. Uh I'm the expectation is to roll He's seven now. He's played in big games, but I think it's a seven-man team now, and really it's a six-man team. Jeff Green it played is. ten minutes the other night. Yeah. Jeff and Green was not involved in any minutes of real significance in the basketball game. So it's now been distilled down to Michael Malone effectively saying, I have six starters. Now, one guy has to come off the bench because I can't play six players. But I have six starting caliber players. Not seven, not eight. I have six. They're the ones who are going to play. Uh, Jeff Green might get 10 minutes. Christian Brown probably won't get any. Bruce Brown will get somewhere between 20 minutes and 40 minutes, depending on how effective he is and what the matchups are and so on. But Brown's defense, uh, Bruce Brown's defense, is much more of an important consideration to the Nuggets than his offense because with or without Bruce Brown, the Nuggets are going to average almost 120 points per 100 possessions. With or without him, with or without Caldwell Pope, even even without Jokic, they're going to be able to average close to that. Can you imagine that Jokic is even better than 119.7 when he's on the floor <laughs> for other possessions? It hasn't been very, but But... You know, it's it, and 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 to me that works regardless. I think Miami's a better bet, better defensive team than Boston because they display defensive intensity more regularly than the Celtics do. I'd agree with that. Okay, but I agree that Miami is the team you'd rather play because I think the matchups work better, and I think against Miami. I think you can play six guys. And the one guy off their bench who worries me is Martin. Martin and right. Brown can play Martin yep. with a 6'9 wingspan. I agree. I agree. There's there's just not 
uh, a situation in which the Nuggets are not very well equipped to face this. Because, uh, look, as good as Jimmy Butler is, and he is, is he better than Devin Booker? Not sure today he is. Uh, no, not offensively. Is he better than Kevin Durant? Not offensively. No. Not offensively. Is he even better than LeBron James? No. Is he Anthony Edwards level? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, he's more of a guy who brings intangibles. The competitiveness is off the charts. Um, you know, he doesn't have to pick his spots the way LeBron does at age 38, for example. You know, he's younger than most of the guys you mentioned, and he brings a certain ferocity to the proceedings yes. that I, I think can be bothersome mm-hmm. for the opponent and he lifts not so much with anything he does tangibly but he lifts his teammates in intangible areas because he's one guy that every teammate knows will back him yes and you're not ever worried about his effort you're not ever nope. worried about him backing down from he's the got your back yep whether you're caleb martin or Lowry, yeah. or Struess, or Vincent, or Adebayo. And there are he's, multiple he's ways to lead. their backs. And that's, that's Butler's way to lead. One and it, it clearly works. And that's what makes, I think, him, him such an interesting player the in these playoffs. best thing about Butler now, this is going to sound silly, but I'll let you be the judge. Okay. <laughs> and or the listeners, I suppose. Butler's main value to the Miami Heat, in my opinion, is that he likes his teammates in a way he never liked his teammates in Chicago. He never liked his teammates in Minnesota. He never liked his teammates in Philadelphia. He likes the guys he plays with. And if he likes you as a teammate, he respects you as a teammate. If he respects you as a teammate, He will have your back regardless. He will take little to no credit if he likes his teammates. He will take virtually all the blame if he likes Mm -hmm. and respects his teammates. That's his value. There's almost nothing tangible or purely tangible about his value to the Miami Heat. It's more of the intangible idea that he simply likes and respects his teammates, including virtually all of the undrafted ones. Now, he was first-round pick. Late first round. Mm -hmm. In his mind, those undrafted guys, they're his people. Yes. They're his people. And I think Spolster is his kind of coach. And I know he's had this kind of love-hate relationship with Thibodeau down through the years. Kind of like playing for him, but loved to beat him recently when the Heat beat the Knicks, right? And I imagine he reveres Riley in a way that he did not necessarily respect front office figures in Chicago, Minnesota, or Philadelphia. Just guessing on that. 
that's what makes Butler dangerous and what makes Miami dangerous, that they really are a team. Now, if you take raw talent, Boston's a better team, and that's why everybody picked Boston to make short work of Miami. The series was supposed to have ended uh, no later than tomorrow night in Game 5 in Boston's favor. Instead, the only team in that series that has a chance to end it tomorrow night is Miami. Not Boston. Miami. And that's because you can't account for intangible factors like that. You can perhaps not even notice them, but you certainly can't account for them in a way that would make Miami anything other than a continual underdog. And truth be told, if there is a team in these playoffs that's earned at best grudging respect, it hasn't been Denver. It's been Miami. Denver, after all, was a one seed. Miami, an eight seed that obviously, because it's an eight seed in the play-in tournament, lost to the Atlanta Hawks at home in its first game. Otherwise, they'd have been a seventh seed. And then went on to knock off the number one seed, then the number four seed, and they're one away from Actually, the, the number two number seed, five right? Seed. Pardon me, the one, the five, and now potentially the two. Right. So, obviously, it's a, a particularly good run for Miami. You don't want to know who you would rather face as well. Our call and text line is 303-831-1340. I want to remind you, by the way, if you're injured, you need a winner. Well, we have the people that you'll need to talk to. That's our friends at Burnham Law. 720-845-7001 is the phone number. If you have been injured in an accident, you need someone who will go fight for you. And their personal injury attorneys have years of experience fighting for those clients. They have locations all over, wherever you need it, in Colorado, Fort Collins, Boulder, Westminster, Cherry Creek, Colorado Springs, the DTC, even in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And when you're injured, they'll push for you to get the maximum recovery, whether that's by settlement or by trial. So when you're hurt, don't mess around with this. Don't hire someone you see off a billboard. Hire someone that you know will get you the win. That's our friends at Burnham Law. BurnhamLaw.com, 720-845-7001. The Denver Nuggets have done something in making the finals that no team has ever done. It's dubious, but they have it. And they'll be willing to hand it off very happily. I'll explain next on My Life Sport. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets did make a finals once in the ABA at the tail end of the 1975-76 season when they lost in the finals to Dr. J's New York Nets four games to two. But in the NBA, obviously, they never made a final. 46 years in the, in the NBA before reaching the finals. That is the longest a team has gone before reaching the finals and 93 NBA playoff wins before reaching the finals. Uh, They obviously got their 94th, but then they're in the finals. Uh, Those were both records. Now you get to hand some of that off a little bit because there are 
couple teams, one in particular that's got a longer streak, and you may know who that is. Sandy, I'm sure you do. But uh, the ones with the longest now, there are five teams that are on 20 more years. The New Orleans Pelicans at 21 seasons. The Grizzlies at 28. The Charlotte Hornets at 33. The Minnesota Timberwolves at 34. And the uh, the Kings of Futility. Yes. The new Kings of Futility. Yeah. Uh, no longer the Denver Nuggets. The Los Angeles Clippers. Yeah. 53 yeah, years right. and counting. Yeah, that's right. Without well, an NBA Finals the, the appearance. Clippers weren't always the Clippers, as you well know. They were mm-hmm. the Buffalo Braves. And in the mid-'70s, they were a pretty good team with Bob McAdoo and Randy Smith for a while, Ernie DiGregorio, Jack Ramsey was the coach before he went to Portland. And they had a very good team, but they never made the finals. And then they moved to Los Angeles in the late-1970s Uh, They had acquired Bill Walton from Portland, but Bill Walton had the bad feats, and he would play very little basketball for the remainder of his career and played almost no basketball for the San Diego slash Los Angeles Clippers and was eventually picked up by the Celtics after begging Red Auerbach for a chance. And, of course, he won a championship as part of one of the great single-season teams in the history of the sport the 85-86 Boston Celtics. But, yes, the Nuggets won 120 playoff games combined in the NBA and the ABA, and all they had to show for it before Monday night was one trip to the ABA Finals in 1976. That's it. That's it. And, uh, yes, they went to the ABA Finals, but they had 27 ABA playoff victories in all. You would think at some point, they would have broken through. They were a Western Division team. Uh, of course, at the end of the ABA, there were only four teams made to playoffs because there weren't many more than four still in existence. But they never could quite break through. And they would lose multiple times to teams that would eventually go on and win ABA titles. And they would lose close to those teams. There was many a frustrating Game 7 loss. Uh, maybe the most frustrating was in 74-75, their second to last year in the ABA, when they won 65 games and lost 19, playing out of the old Auditorium Arena, one of our callers referred to the good old days at the Odd in lower downtown Denver. Larry Brown and Carl Shear were running the organization for the first time in 74-75. Larry was the coach, of course. They had Ralph Simpson. They had Matt Calvin. They had Bobby Jones. They had Dave Robish. They had Byron Beck. They did not yet have David Thompson or Dennis. That year, they went 65-19, and Sean. They won their opening playoff series a Western Division series with the Utah Stars, who had some guy named Moses Malone playing. They're pretty good. They had a guy named John Roach playing for them, who eventually played with the Nuggets and averaged better than 17 points a game. Great college player and a good pro. Great college player at South Carolina. Uh, They had Ron Boone on that team. That's a good team. The Nuggets beat them four games to two. They're in the Western Division Finals at that point against the Indiana Pacers, 
George McGinnis in the prime of his career. Oh, yeah, and they had Mel Daniels and Roger Brown kind of at the end of his career. Went to a game seven, and McGinnis single-handedly beat him. 40 points, 23 rebounds, 8 assists. And lest you think that was a fluke, it wasn't for the George McGinnis of the mid-1970s. Now, the George McGinnis the Nuggets got for the 78-79 season, that George McGinnis was largely finished as a player, although late in the year he began to play pretty well. And then he turned his ankle and wasn't available for the playoffs. And guess who the Nuggets lost to that year in the playoffs? They lost to the L.A. Lakers. Right. The first of many losses to the Lakers in the playoffs. Then the next year, they were playing the defending champion, Kentucky Colonels, after winning 60 games. All right? 60 and 24. Best record in the ABA. And they beat them in seven games, four games to three, Artis Gilmore, Louis Dampier, but the Nuggets by that time had not only Dan Essel, but rookie David Thompson. And in that seventh game against Kentucky, they wiped out the Colonels. Again, a terrific team coached by Hubie Brown. David Thompson in that seventh game had numbers that will seem familiar, if you recall Monday night in LeBron James. 40 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists. Dan Issel in that same game, 24 points, 12 rebounds, 5 assists. And they won that seventh game. And DT and Issel might have had even better games in game six, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. 42 the difference points was Thompson, 30 for Julius Issel, Irving and John Williamson were playing on the other side of the court that night. Bobby Jones got in foul trouble guarding Julius, fouled out of the game. And the Nuggets blew a 23-point late third-quarter lead. If they had held on and won that game, they would have had Game 7 in Denver, and I believe they would have won it. Uh, the Nets had already won a game in Denver, and that proved to be the difference in the series. They won that first game in Denver, and then the home team won every other game. Well, after maybe that. there's a little bit of, of history there that's interesting as well because there are four NBA franchises that are survivors of the APA, of course. Uh, the Nuggets, the Nets, uh, now in Brooklyn, the Pacers and the Spurs. Correct. The Nets and the Pacers both won ABA championships. Of course, multiple ABA champions. Neither of them have, has ever won an NBA championship. Not even close. Well, I shouldn't say that. Indiana made the In, finals. Indiana made the finals. And then the Lakers killed them with Shaq right. and Kobe. But, they, but neither of those teams, they've won the ABA finals, never won an NBA final. The San Antonio Spurs never won an ABA title. They do have five NBA yeah, titles. That they do. So at yeah, least the small sample size with four teams. Yeah. But if you've never won an ABA final, maybe the NBA final well, in the cards. In in my humble opinion, if not for certain events, if really the best teams had won in 1978 and 1979, if the best teams had won the NBA titles in those years, the Denver Nuggets would have had a title in 1978. And I believe had uh, Brian Taylor not left the team in mid season, 
Brian Taylor, by the way, had 24 in the last ABA game, playing for the Nets against the Nuggets, mm-hmm. was a key man along with Williamson and Irving. Difference in that game, the Nets found a third scorer to go with Irving and Williamson. The Nuggets didn't find a third scorer to go with Issel and Thompson. But anyway, I think if Brian Taylor hadn't left the team in midseason, the Nuggets were the best team in the NBA at that point. He leaves the team. The Nuggets still get to the conference finals, but they lose to Seattle. In 1979, Doug Moe's San Antonio Spurs were the best team in the NBA. And they were playing a seventh game in Washington Mm -hmm. against the Bullets. And there was an official named Paul Mahalik who made sure with the Spurs ahead seven points with about three minutes to go, a little more than three minutes to go, that the Spurs would not win that game and began to whistle the Spurs for every violation you could think of, whether it was fouls or other things that, uh, in effect, allowed the Bullets to come back and win that game. And uh, Doug spoke about that quite candidly afterwards, said they never let an ABA team win. At this point, in, in shortly after the merger, they just the, for the first three years or so, that they weren't going to let an ABA team win. They just weren't. It, it never wasn't going Joe to Joe Namath happen. moment. Uh, like, no. <laughs> like you did and, the NFL, you, we had you, no choice. You did have ABA. You had ABA officials coming back to the NBA who were discriminated against because they had had the audacity to move to the ABA for quite a bit more money, by the way, than they were getting paid in the NBA. Earl Strom was the most notable among them, and Earl Strom spent the rest of his career being discriminated against by Daryl Gerritsen and the commissioner of the NBA, um, uh, or commissioners, I guess, as it it turned out, Larry O'Brien and David Stern. flagrantly discriminated against Earl Strom. Earl Strom was the best uh, basketball official who ever lived. I think Earl, uh, Irv Brown was the best college basketball official who ever lived. Earl Strom was the best uh, NBA official who ever lived, and you know who told me he was? Irv Brown did. Works for me. And nobody knew more about officiating and officiating quality than the late, great Irv Brown. Spurs back in the Eastern Conference in those days, that year in the first round, the Lakers knocked off the Nuggets two games to one in those little shorter series as well. But now the Nuggets find themselves in the proverbial catbird seat. They can sit and watch as the Celtics and the Heat knock each other around a little bit. It's been fun breaking that down with you and touching on the Broncos a little bit. We'll do that as well. Uh, OTA's practice start out at Dove Valley tomorrow. Thanks to Vinny Benedetto of the Denver Gazette for joining us. Thanks to Danny Bailey in the booth, making us sound good as he always does. Andrew Detmer in the booth as well, making us look as good as we can look over at MileySports.com slash Washington. Sandy's got the sport coat and everything. He's like rocking it today. So anyone was watching on the app, uh, you got to see that. Uh, male model Sandy Clough in a full glory. We'll be back at it tomorrow. But enjoy keeping it right here. For Sandy Clough, I'm Sean Drotar. Keep it locked in. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon at 2 like we always do right here on My Life Sports.